Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 63 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today we're joined by Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis. Before I get into today's show, I wanted to talk to you about the current round of the SIBO coaching program. We dive deeply into topics that will help you with your recovery from SIBO. So if you find that you're really struggling with SIBO and you'd like some help to live well with this painful and often chronic condition, the SIBO coaching program could be for you. Join live and interactive webinars with myself and a team of amazing specialists to learn more about your condition. You can either sign up for the full coaching program or you can join me just for individual webinars. The choice is yours, guys. And this round, you can enjoy webinars on things like negative self-talk and mindset with Dr. Vanessa Thiel, adhesions with Alyssa Tate, how we treat long-term and chronic SIBO with Dr. Jason Wysocki and my forthcoming live interview with Dr. Mark Pimentel on hydrogen sulfide SIBO and something that I know I suffer with myself and that's visceral hypersensitivity with Dr. Megan Taylor. In addition to these amazing educational webinars, I also run live group coaching sessions where you get the opportunity to meet others just like you and we dive deeply into topics that are important to you at that moment in time. And you also get exclusive access to our private Facebook group, which is incredibly active and very supportive. So you can find out more about the program or the individual sessions if you head to today's show notes, thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL. And you can find more information there. Now coming up on next week's podcast, we have got our nutrition coaching session. So I'll be talking all things nutrition and diet. And this is your opportunity to join me on the show. Do you have questions you would like me to answer for you? Well, now's the time to ask them. You can head to the show notes page, thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL and you can leave me a voicemail or you can send me a message and say that you would like to come on the show. You might have questions around what to eat with SIBO, how to deal with meal planning or how to combine multiple food intolerances or you might even have some handy hints and tips that you would like to share with other listeners. I'd love to have you on the show. If you've ever wanted to hear yourself on the Healthy Gut podcast, now is the opportunity. So head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL and you can leave me a voice message or send me an actual message and tell me if you'd like to join me on the show. And coming up this weekend in Portland, Oregon, in the States, we have the SIBO Symposium. And there are still tickets if you would like to attend in person or you can join us online. I'm going to be there. So if you are coming, make sure you let me know because I would love to meet you in person. And again, guys, head to the show notes page, thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL, and you can get a link for the event and how to buy tickets. 
And don't forget, guys, if you would like to get access for free to the full transcription of this episode and all episodes in Season 2 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, you can do so by joining up for free as a member. All you need to do is head to the show notes page, thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL and you'll see a little box on the website that says join the healthy gut membership and all you need to do is pop your name and email there and you will immediately become a member of the show and you will receive an email that contains a link to today's full transcription so it's great to have particularly when brain fog is bad and you just want to read along as well as listen on today's podcast As I said at the start, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, and he is a practitioner of naturopathic gastroenterology. He's been in practice for 38 years, and in 1996, he joined the full-time faculty of the National University of Natural Medicine, or NCNM, as it's otherwise known in Portland, Oregon. He provides patient care and teaches gastroenterology courses, as well as supervising student clinicians at NUNM. He is a frequent presenter at educational seminars around the US and Canada, and he's even coming out to Australia this year and doing an event with Dr. Narala Jacoby. He has authored or co-authored a series of award-winning articles on hiatal hernia syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And he was listed among Portland, Oregon's top docs in the January 2014 edition of Portland Monthly Magazine. Dr. Sandberg-Lewis often treats patients whose health conditions have defied diagnosis despite exhaustive medical testing or complex digestive disorders that have not responded to treatment. Areas of special focus include irritable bowel syndrome, SIBO, GERD, hiatal hernia, inflammatory bowel disease, and unrelenting nausea. Dr. Sandberg-Lewis is the author of the textbook, Functional Gastroenterology, Assessing and Addressing the Causes of Functional GI Disorders. And I have a copy of that book myself and I find it fascinating reading. Dr. Sandberg-Lewis joins me today to talk about functional gastroenterology. So we dive in deeply. I have been looking forward to having Dr. Sandberg-Lewis on the podcast for about a year now and it was absolutely wonderful to meet up with him in person when we were in New Orleans for the Integrative SIBO Conference and we talk all things functional gastroenterology. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks. We finally did it. We finally did it. We've (laughs) been talking about having you come on the show for some time now, and our diaries haven't aligned, our time zones haven't aligned, but here we are sitting in a hotel room together in New Orleans at the um, Integrative SIBO Conference uh, run by Synergy, and we've been able to uh, grab an hour with each other, which is just wonderful to have you come on the show. And today we're going to be talking broadly around um, sort of the functional medical approach to uh, treating a condition like SIBO. But first, I'd love to start off by asking how you came to be a naturopathic doctor and, um, and so experienced in the field of gastrointestinal issues. I was uh, in New Jersey growing up, went to uh, Rutgers College, and I was studying psychology. My father went to a naturopathic doctor in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and said to me, you got to meet this guy. This is really, this is really amazing. And I went and talked to him, and his name was Jerry Olarsh. I don't know if he's still in practice. That was 1972, and uh, I'm sure he isn't. And I, um, I thought, this sounds great. He said to me, you could do a lot with psychology to help people, but if you really understood the whole system, the mind and the body and how they work together, you could you could help so many more. 
And I thought that made a lot of sense. And at Rutgers, we had a little pet name for the school, the Rut. So I was ready for something different, and I, I got something different. And it's, you know, my life has been like jumping on a really fast freight train from that moment on. It's been great. That's exciting. We you you do a lot of work with the um, in the SIBO world. Uh, you you treat a lot of people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, something that I see commonly is that we can often us SIBOers can get fixated on our small intestine and forget about the bigger picture. Why is it so important for us to think about the whole digestive tract and the whole body rather than just our small intestine, which is causing us quite a lot of bother? Well, I teach, I've taught gastroenterology for 21 years, and so I am pretty familiar with all the parts of the digestive tract and interested in all of them. Um, back in the early years, uh, early 1900s, I believe, the Thompsonian herbalists believed that the seat of all disease was the stomach. And they would give people two different herbs. First, lobelia in doses high enough to make them vomit, to clean out the digestive tract through the stomach. And then they, just before they died of um, neurological collapse, they would, because it's a sedative to the central nervous system, they would give them um, cayenne to stimulate their nervous system. And, and that was their flushing, uh, cleansing uh, type approach to a lot of problems, as I understand it. Later on, when 1920s, 1930s, 40s, 50s, they jumped to the other end of the digestive tract and said, death begins in the colon. That's what I heard all the time when I was in school. And colonic therapy, washing out the colon, doing cleansing diets with bentonite clay and psyllium seed were really popular. Um, it seemed to me, after coming from those two ends, those extremes, that if there was something 18 to 20 feet long, that was where all the absorption took place, almost all the absorption of nutrients, and where bile lived and then left before it went to the large intestine and pancreatic secretions existed and acid came in. And the whole immune system pretty much for the whole body existed there. I thought, there's got to be something really important going on there. So that's, that's when I, I started looking into small intestine and its microbiota and the overgrowth of its microbiota. So given that... Uh um, our small intestine is so important in our digestive process. Uh, what are some of the things that we should be considering, um, particularly if we are new to our SIBO diagnosis or even if we have been dealing with this condition for a while and it's really not going anywhere? Uh, it's not going anywhere, meaning treatment isn't helping. Yes. Well, of course, there's two kinds of ways that treatment isn't helping, at least two. One would be, my test isn't normalizing. That's always interesting and interesting for doctors to try to figure out. And the other one is, I'm not getting better with my symptoms. And those are two independent and important pieces. They both have to happen. Actually, the test doesn't have to get better. That's not important. It's all that really matters is that the patient needs to feel better. Uh, and we use 80 to 90% symptom improvement as our sort of marker of true success. Um, but the test does help us, helps to guide us. And so here's a scenario. Um, the person's test normalizes beautifully with herbs or whatever treatment we do, but the person really doesn't feel better. Well, I get a lot of those um, because that means there's something else going on. We can't just pin it all on one thing. And, and often 
in medicine, it's not that simple. It's not always one cause. Some other doctor would have figured it out if there was one cause. Um, so if the, the test is normalized, we repeat the test because the, the person really doesn't feel much better, or maybe they're only 20 or 30% better. Uh, the next step is to figure out what else might be going on. So, for instance, if, you know, if we've talked about, probably in your podcast, you've talked about some of these things, but if the upper gate of the small intestine isn't functioning properly, some portion of it, um, such as stomach acid and pepsin, uh, if that's not working right, we use a Heidelberg um, radio telemetry device in our office to, to assess that, then really the whole, some people have described the whole digestive process of a, as a north to south process, meaning saliva is important for the esophagus flowing down, acid is important for the stomach and flowing down into the small intestine, which then triggers pancreatic secretions and bile output to some degree, um, and bicarbonate output from the from the pancreas besides the enzymes and that really moves the digestive process on so that people tolerate their food uh, if, if anything's going wrong with any of those three things bile output from the liver and stored in the gallbladder and then has to be released properly um, let's say something's maybe it sounds like something's going on there maybe the person has quite a bit of nausea um, maybe they um, get pain, especially in the right upper quadrant of their abdomen, we're going to get an ultrasound, especially if when we do an exam, there's tenderness in that area, um, called a positive Murphy sign. That almost sounds Australian. It does, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and then uh, many doctors, they kind of run out of ideas when the ultrasound comes back looking fine. Oh, your gallbladder looks fine. Your liver looks fine. Um, but the next step, if they have those kinds of symptoms, is to get what's called a HIDA scan, H-I-D-A. And that is a scan that actually looks at the motility of the gallbladder and the patency and function of all the, the bile ducts from the liver all the way down to the gallbladder and then out through the cystic duct into the small intestine. So there's a condition called biliary dyskinesia that causes all those same symptoms as gallstones, pain, nausea, sometimes vomiting, foods don't digest well, especially the ones containing fat. And that's, that's a great thing to, uh, to discover. There's actually a thing called an ejection fraction and it shows you how well the gallbladder is contracting. If that's un well under 35% contraction, that person's going to have all those types of problems. And then we have to work with herbs and diet and sometimes physical therapies to help the gallbladder muscles start to work again. Um, so that's just, that's just one thing. Um, sometimes the right upper quadrant pain and general feeling of malaise and poor energy and feeling toxic, not tolerating foods, uh, ends up on an ultrasound to show that the, the liver is opaque, meaning it's got fat deposition, usually above 15% uh, fat in the hepatocytes, the cells that make up the liver. And uh, fatty liver, it can be a, a really serious condition if it if that fat also triggers an inflammatory process, and then it's called NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So it's actually a type of hepatitis that can, in ser more serious cases, progress to cirrhosis of the liver uh, or even liver cancer. So, you know, that's something I'm always looking, looking for. And a lot of doctors ignore it on the ultrasound. Oh, well, got a little echogenicity there. Um, nothing to worry about, but it is something to worry about because it's the beginning of all types of problems, as you probably have talked about on your podcast before, the liver detoxification pathways, which are take place in the, in the gut wall as well, 
and the cells in, in the digestive tract besides the liver, uh, but predominantly in the liver. Uh, that's so important for how you feel after you eat something or take a medicine or take an herb, whether or not you're going to feel like you're poisoned or whether your liver detoxification takes care of it so there is no poison it's all neutralized so I mean that's just the, the right upper quadrant um, some of the more common things that can can happen there and that's you know talking more about bile and the liver hypochlorhydria is a big one some people have it iatrogenically meaning doctor induced or treatment induced because of proton pump inhibitors um, and some people just naturally have it. The, the textbook, uh, most common textbook of pathology in the United States, uh, Robbins, uh, it's now written by Cecil Robbins, wrote it for many years, was the uh, lead author. Uh, Robbins Pathology, or Pathologic Basis of Disease, states in there that well over 50% of people after age 60 or so, have atrophic gastritis, which means they have fewer parietal cells and therefore decreased production of acid and intrinsic factor for absorption B12. Those cells make both acid and, and intrinsic factor. So that's a big factor and really common, really common. Um, and then pancreatic insufficiency that's, that's the kind of picture where the, the, the typical picture with pancreatic insufficiency is that the person, again, doesn't do well with fats, but they don't do well with carbohydrates, and they don't do well with protein either. Um, the reason being, the pancreas produces enzymes to digest all three. So we often do a stool elastase test or a stool... Uh, chymotrypsin tests, those are two pretty reliable tests for pancreatic uh, enzyme output. And uh, if that's the problem, we work with hormone, re uh, excuse me, uh, enzyme replacement or different treatments to try to stimulate the pancreas to work better. That, that can turn everything around. And that, in the, in the standard classic picture, pancreatic insufficiency is the patient who not only has those kinds of problems with all, all types of food, but they can't gain weight. They're underweight. Uh, they're at the bottom of their body mass index or lower, and they just can't gain weight. And that in itself is a problem. Um, they often have malabsorption of fat, which you can see in the stool if you test it. Um, that's called steatorrhea. And they tend towards looser more frequent stools, occasionally they have constipation, but more typically those are the, the diarrhea, very underweight patients. So that's just the upper gate, you know, the, the three magical fluids that, uh, or more fluids that are produced in the upper portion and drain into the small intestine. What about uh, things like bloating? I often hear from people saying, I've got a clear SIBO test, but I'm still bloating all the time. Does that mean my test was incorrect or should I be considering something else? What do you do with your uh, patients if bloating still remains present for them? Yeah. Well, the most obscure cause of that, of course, is abdominal pelvic dyssynergia, which is a uncoordinated diaphragm together with the external abdominal muscles on the outside of the abdomen. Um, and that requires some uh, breath training and sometimes biofeedback to re-educate the, the diaphragm to properly relax after the meal is eaten and to allow to, to retrain the external abdominal muscles to contract so that you don't get this intense bloating. That's, that's kind of the most, maybe one of the more obscure ones. And, and there are some dangerous ones such as ovarian cancer in women um, sometimes presents that way. But um, probably what I would look at more would be 
uh, enzyme deficiencies, acid, pepsin, pancreatic enzymes, or even um, the the alkaline secretions, the bicarbonate from the from the pancreas or the bicarbonate from the Brunner's Brunner's glands of the small intestine. Um, and of course, there's carbohydrate malabsorption, which can be related to that, but it can also be related to um, conditions that affect the small intestine membrane so that the disaccharidases aren't there to digest the sugars. Um, or some other mechanism where um, there is an inability of the nutrients to move through, such as a thickening like in scleroderma or Crohn's disease. Certainly, you got to consider Crohn's disease whenever something looks like it's happening in the small bowel, especially if pain is a major symptom. Uh, sometimes abdominal pain is the only symptom, but there can also be bloating. There can also be every symptom of SIBO because Crohn's almost, you can almost say Crohn's equals SIBO. Um, we heard at the seminar yesterday that one doctor just doesn't even test their Crohn's patients for, for SIBO. They just treat them assuming they have it because if you have thickening, especially thickening of the wall of the small intestine, which often happens in Crohn's, the motility is just not going to be normal. What about further down the, the uh, digestive tract? Are there some things that we should be considering if we're not seeing our symptoms normalize? So as we move down, uh, we end up, of course, at the ileocecal valve. And I wrote a whole chapter on that in my textbook. But um, that's a very, that's an interesting thing. Lenny Weinstock, uh, when I asked him to take a look at my book, he uh, he sent me back an email and he said, I have to have an open mind to believe in an open ileocecal valve. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not a standard thing that, that the standard gastroenterologists talk about. But actually, I, I asked Pimentel years ago, how often when you do a colonoscopy do you see, a, you know, a more patchless or um, weak and not fully closing ileocecal valve. And if I remember correctly, Alison Seebecker was there. I'd have to check with her. I think he said about 10% of the time. Um, and certainly, sometimes the, sometimes the valve isn't even there. And if, if someone says, yeah, I had my, my ileocecal valve uh, removed, surgically, uh, right away, I think, oh, they probably had Crohn's because that's the more common place for things to get thickened and um, have an obstruction and just have to remove that section. But um, the ileocecal valve does uh, sometimes lose tone and become more patchless, and that's especially true in people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because of their collagen being more floppy. Um, people with Ehlers-Danlos, by the way, if, if your doctor doesn't screen you for Ehlers-Danlos with a bite and a score, do it yourself. Uh, just Google um, bite and score or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and this nice red full-page um, graphic will come up and show you how to do a, a bite and score. Uh, it's a, just a series of five or six uh, joint mobility tests that you can do. And for w people under 50, if it's five or or higher uh, on the positive, that's a, a very strong indicator that they may have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And for people over 50, a four is a positive because we get less flexible over time. And what is it? Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is there, there are actually s many kinds, almost six or seven kinds, I believe, and some of them are, all of them are extremely rare, except for the joint hypermobility type. That one probably occurs in about 4% of Americans. I'm not sure the rest of the world. Uh, oh, except there are some tribes in Africa where it's as high as almost 60%, very flexible people. Um, 
but it's it's one of the genetic collagen conditions that just alters the structure of collagen and in this case in the joint hypermobility type it causes collagen to be less elastic and more floppy it just doesn't hold so if your listeners aren't familiar with collagen it is um it's it's basically the protein that holds together all the tissues so it makes up tendons and ligaments and it's involved in bone and skin and um hyperelast hyperelasticity or floppiness you know it's like it's a sometimes you hear the term hyperelasticity but i think just kind of looser is probably a better term for it um when that happens people are really prone to the ileocecal valve being more loose and open, and therefore it's not preventing as much of the reflux from the cecum into the last portion of the small intestine, allowing trillions of bacteria per gram to enter what is normally a low load system. Um, Normally, of course, if the migrating motor complex is working well, it moves things back down, but it's going to have to work really hard if it's never really closing fully. Um, Those folks also tend to have sliding hiatal hernias, which can cause a lot of symptoms in the digestive tract, uh, along with, besides reflux, nausea, um, and and non-GI symptoms, such as a lot of uh, cardiac uh, arrhythmias, even some of the more severe ones can be triggered, such as atrial fibrillation, and um, that's pretty well proven by research. And anxiety is a big one because it locks up the diaphragm s- somewhat. Uh, then people aren't using their diaphragm to breathe properly. They feel like they have shortness of breath. And just like asthma, it can be very anxiety-provoking. So those two conditions are more common with Ehlers-Danlos. Um, they're also more prone to prolapse. So I always look very carefully, even if the patient tells me, oh, yes, I had a normal colonoscopy or I had a normal x-ray or a normal CT of my abdomen. I take a really close look at it, and often I'll find in those patients that their transverse colon is prolapsed. It's U-shaped instead of going straight horizontal. And that can cause a lot of symptoms because it's creating a lot of pressure on the small intestine, even if they don't have adhesions from endometriosis or surgery or some other condition, like a, a, an appendix that um, perforated, they still can have all that pressure, especially if they're constipated. A lot of stool can gather in that prolapsed transverse colon. It becomes longer, tortuous sometimes, but especially longer. They call that a redundant colon. And it can hang down as low as the uterus and the bladder and cause symptoms that seem like interstitial cystitis, which we always think, oh, that goes along with hydrogen SIBO but or, or hydrogen sulfide SIBO. But it also goes along with having a big loaded um, log jam of stool in your prolapsed transverse that's sitting on your bladder. So, yes, looking all the way down toward the end is, is pretty important. And I, I just not to leave it out, would be rectal dyssinergia, just as we talked about abdominophrenic at the top or on the outsides. Uh, rectal dyssinergia is when the normal relaxation of the external sphincter of the rectum doesn't take place when the person has the urge to have a bowel movement. So they they strain, and normally that outer uh, sphincter is going to relax and the stool just comes out. But in these people, when they, they, when they have the urge to have a bowel movement and they strain to have a bowel movement, the external sphincter tightens. It's like trying to take your car out of the garage without opening the garage door. It doesn't happen, or you have to break the door down. So... Those people also need physical therapy, biofeedback to retrain those muscles. Um, 
so that they coordinate properly. Because it's a really coordinated dance, this whole peristaltic wave that moves things through and then the valve transiently opens and then it closes again as the food and bacteria move through through all the different sections of, of the digestive tract. One question I, I'm sure my listeners will have is if they've had their ileocecal valve removed or damaged, does that automatically mean they will end up with SIBO? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One question I, I'm sure my listeners will have is if they've had their ileocecal valve removed or damaged, does that automatically mean they will end up with SIBO? The fascinating thing is, according to research, and I think this was Johns Hopkins, um, it doesn't always. If they, if they really have an intact migrating motor complex, they may not necessarily. It's definitely... Um, it's definitely true that if you have an open ileocecal valve, the research says you you may not have bacterial overgrowth if you have things intact. But very rarely do people have an MMC that's intact if they have other GI problems. I mean, it's a pretty common issue. And, and especially if they have anxiety um, or take medicines for chronic pain and all the other, you, you know, these many different causes of changes in motility through the small bowel. Um, They don't have to have it, according to the research, even if the valve is somewhat open. But if it's gone uh, and there's just this open highway, it's a miracle if they don't have it. And so those people, I, I used to call it incurable SIBO, but that's it kind of sounds hopeless to people. So I just talk about that with other doctors. But if I'm talking to the patient, I'll say, you have rapidly relapsing SIBO. And so you're going to, because we can't treat that, there's no valve, we can't make an artificial valve, um, we're going to have to constantly be in prevention mode, um, you know, major prevention mode, and do some, we usually do periodic uh, cycling of herbs. So we might use berberine-containing herbs for two weeks, and then we'll switch to an allicin extract for two weeks, and then we'll switch to an oregano extract for two weeks, and and then we'll start all over again. Um, and that, along with the right prokinetics for that patient and the right diet, um, often works really well. Let's talk about prokinetics, laxatives, um, peristalsis, migrating motor complex, particularly for those people that are just starting out. That This can often feel quite overwhelming, and they think, I don't know what any of that means. So I'd love for us to just, if you could give people an explanation of the difference between, say, peristalsis and the migrating motor complex, and then how we can use certain herbs or supplements to support those functions and and what also people can be doing if they suffer from chronic constipation or on the opposite side chronic uh, diarrhea okay that's a long question uh, so if I veer off course remind me where 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 the road is um, and I teach 
I teach a two-hour lecture on GI motility, so I'll try to not include too much. Um, basic, I think the basic thing to remember is, number one, um, peristalsis is progressive, organized movement from mouth to anus. Uh, you might call it the law of the gut. Sometimes they call it that because that's what the gut's good at. That's, it knows how to do that. It doesn't even need the brain to do that, the brain and the head. It's got its own brain that does that, called the enteric nervous system. And so there's this very coordinated dance that takes place, starting with swallowing. You can write a whole book on swallowing. It's very complicated. In fact, the most, compli the most difficult thing to swallow I always ask that question and people usually say peanut butter or something like that and it's a great great answer the real answer though is water water is the most difficult thing to swallow because the brain tries within the mouth it it takes the bolus of food or liquid the f liquid that's in the mouth and tries to figure out what's the shape so it'll know how to coordinate the muscles to swallow properly and not choke. And water has no shape. I, there's a recent movie called The Shape of Water, but it doesn't have a shape. And therefore, the brain doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, so often people that have um, motility disorders in the esophagus, people like with ALS or other neurodegenerative diseases where they have problems like that, um, they, have to, they have to thicken all of their food like a smoothie so it has some kind of shape their brain can make some kind of sense of it water's a real problem um, or using a straw to give it some kind of shape at least initially when it's in the mouth um, so after swallowing takes place the upper esophageal sphincter transiently opens as the peristalsis is moving the food or liquid down Upper esophageal sphincter, its job is to keep air out of the stomach. So it opens, lets the food move through, then closes right away. Peristalsis continues, moves food down to the lower esophagus, where the lower esophageal sphincter is. Its job is to keep stomach contents out of the esophagus. And it transiently opens, food moves through, it closes. Now the food's in the stomach. In the stomach, there are three layers of muscle that just sort of knead the food, like kneading bread. Very amazing system in there. And there's all these different hormones and factors that control how fast the stomach releases the food, empties the food into the small intestine. By four hours, about 91% of the food should already be out of the stomach. In fact, that's another test we often order is a gastric emptying study. And we do for f the, the person eats a radio labeled uh, meal that can show up on x-ray. And each hour they have an x-ray to see how much food is still in the stomach because gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying is a big issue that can cause abdominal pain, upper abdominal pain, nausea and or vomiting and weight loss if there's enough vomiting of food um, so um, gastric emptying is, is really important once the food moves through into the small intestine we have um, the big difference between the small intestine motility and peristalsis and the large intestine the small intestine most of its motility occurs when you're fasting. So after you haven't eaten for four hours, definitely five hours, the migrating motor complex or housekeeper wave of the small intestine starts activating. Every 90 minutes, it's going to move food through from the stomach to the ileocecal valve all the way through the 18 to 20 feet of small intestine. Do that for a period of minutes and then it rests and then starts up again about 90 minutes later, and it does that until you eat. Once you eat breakfast, say, after a night, um, it stops. And what when about you, when you drink? 
Does it stop when we have water? Uh, as far as I know, water has no effect on it. Um, once the once the breakfast is eaten, migrating motor complex stops, but the large intestine actually gets triggered. There are three different reflexes that take place, two of them in the morning. Um, there's So when you eat or drink you know, a full glass of water in the morning, um, it distends the stomach, and that triggers what's called the gastrocolic reflex, which means gastro, stomach, colic, colon. Uh, it triggers the colon to start to move. Those are called mass movements instead of migrating motor complex. And that's what moves uh, food usually from the transverse colon and beyond and brings it down into the rectum, and then the person gets the sense that they need to have a bowel movement, and they have a bowel movement. Um, so it's, it's important to understand that eating and distending the stomach is the trigger for bowel movements, whereas fasting is the trigger for small intestine motility. And that's why Pimentel and others talk about food timing, spacing your meals out, ideally, if it works for the person, five hours apart. So there's time for an hour of migrating motor complex in between meals. And then, of course, the major part of it at night, if people don't get up and eat during the night, which some people I hear do. Um, so big differences. The other morning reflex is called the orthocolic reflex. It means when you get up and move and change position and stretch, that also triggers the colon to start to move. So I, I like to have people put the two of them together, if there's, especially if they have any problem with constipation. I say, drink one to two glasses of water when you first get up, because you'll have the orthocolic as you're stretching and you know starting to move around, and then the gastrocolic by distending your stomach. Mm, how interesting. I have actually haven't heard of that before. Um, how important is it to fast? I, I know that many people can get quite fixated on fasting between meals. And, uh, and those that are underweight already can often feel that that speeds up their weight loss, but they're scared to eat because they've heard they need to be supporting their migrating motor complex. What should we be focusing on, fasting and supporting the MMC, or should be we be worrying more about trying to keep some weight on our frame if we're underweight? Yeah. So I, I'm really careful to we weigh people, we figure out their body mass index, and if they're low and if they have trouble gaining weight, um, we really try to put it in writing and say it a few times. Don't do every single thing you read on the Internet. You'll kill yourself. There are too many ideas out there. Um, do, do what I'm telling you. You know, you're coming to me, you're paying me a lot of money. Do what I'm telling you. I'm not saying don't do research. That's fine if you want to. But check it through me. Because for you, um, you're not going to get enough calories if you only eat every five hours. And there's not enough hours in a day, and we don't want you to eat during the night. It's probably more, more important to get that good, you know, 10 to 12 hours at night when you're not eating. And don't worry about it the rest of the time. That's also true for people that have really uh, shifting blood sugar levels and need to eat more frequently. So th it's not, these things are not, this is not a religion. This is health. And it's, it's a different path for each person. Um, you can't just decide there are laws and then you have to strictly follow them no matter what. And I think that can be one of the dangers of going onto some of these big online Facebook groups where people are saying, you must fast. I was told I had to fast, therefore everyone must fast. No, it's really important that we have an individualized plan, that we're working with a practitioner that's experienced and that they are helping to guide us because of their experience with this condition. And they've got the medical training uh, to guide us on what we need as an individual, not what this kind of general uh, um, approach may be, that it may work for some people. Um, 
in terms of uh, prokinetics and laxatives, uh, there is some confusion with some people around, well, what, uh, what are they? Is there a difference uh, to them? Can we quickly touch on prokinetics, laxatives, and why and when we might consider using them? I would say I use a prokinetic of some sort with every patient in the prevention phase if we're treating SIBO. And there's so many to choose from. It's wonderful because you can really personalize it. Um, <clears throat> prokinetics are natural substances or prescription items that help increase either the migrating motor complex in the small bowel, gastric emptying in the stomach, or colonic movement uh, to actually produce a bowel movement. And so some have more action on the upper digestive tract, some affect the whole digestive tract, and some more just on the lower digestive tract. Things like laxatives, there they're, are they're many different mechanisms by which they work, but they're pretty much focused more on the, on the large bowel, um, things that we call laxatives. But prokinetics, like for instance ginger, um, work in the upper digestive tract. That's why it's so good for nausea. Um, really help with delayed gastric emptying. Um, a drug that really helps with delayed gastric emptying is erythromycin uh, that used to be used as an antibiotic but rarely is ever used for that anymore now that we have zithromycin. Um, but we use it in about a 15th of the, the dose that was antibiotic to stimulate the migrating motor complex, taken at night, once a, once a day at night. And for people with true gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying, sometimes we also use it 15 to 20 minutes before meals as well. But all in all, the for a whole day, they're still not getting enough to even get a single dose of what used to be a three-a-day dose uh, to treat infection. So um, there's those, and they're pretty inexpensive and pretty well tolerated. The problem with erythromycin, though, is it can interact with some uh, other drugs that affect the rhythm of the heart. So we're always checking to see what other medicines, if someone's on prescription medications, to see whether the erythromycin might be contraindicated. Um, for, for people that have more constipation, we tend to go for things that also activate the large bell. The prescription item that is sort of my first approach there is procalipride. It's a uh, common name in the United States is Resolor, and in Canada it's called Resotran. And that one um, affects serotonin receptors and uh, really has pretty good effects throughout most of the digestive tract. It's definitely going to help a lot of people produce a bowel movement um, if they're constipated. I tend to go more with, if it's a prescription, I go more with erythromycin for people that have had SIBO with m predominant diarrhea. Um, or I'll use a, a different herbal, such as Iberagast, or I'll use, um, there's a new product that's ginger plus artichoke. Um, that's kind of nice because um, we, we make the analogy there that when you take artichoke, it helps move bile. So if you can move bile and secrete bile more efficiently in the small intestine, that has a laxative effect. It actually helps move things through. So it's sort of like taking the garbage off of your driveway before you open the door and take your car out. Um, and then the ginger helps to move your car out of the driveway, which is the stomach, um, out of the garage. Um, so Iberagast is a German formula that's a liquid that has um, 10 or more herbs. The premier herb there is I Iberis Amara. Uh, which which is used uh, for all kinds of GI problems, including gastroparesis. Um, and it has some peppermint in it. So occasionally a bigger dose of it will cause some aggravation of reflux. 
So it's not our first choice for people with reflux, but some people with reflux, it actually gets rid of their <laughs> reflux because there's a lot of herbs in there, not just peppermint. Um, we also sometimes use D-limonene, which is an extract of orange peel. Um, and as I understand it, that's been used, grapefruit peel and orange peel have been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years, and that's one of their functions is as a prokinetic to move things through the digestive tract. Um, those are some of the more common ones. There's also a, a product called Modal Pro that combines, it's really smart. They just looked at all the research, anything in the natural world that had an effect on motility. And so they put 5-HTP as a precursor to serotonin since the serotonin is one of the major factors that uh, triggers and controls motility through the gut. They put in some, I think, some B6 to help activate that and help it convert. They put in ginger. Uh, they put in melatonin. So uh, there are many, many choices. I've used Motel Pro uh, for the last couple of years and, and it works really well for me. I really enjoy it. And one of the first things I said to my practitioner when I started it was, I feel amazing after using this. It really made a big difference. To finish up, um, how important is it to you for us to get that all, you know, that all clear SIBO test? Is that the holy grail for us to end up with this kind of flat line or what we would consider negative breath test? Or is it more important to, for us to feel better and not worry so much about the test results? Yeah, you don't want a flat line. You do, yeah, a negative was nice. But again, I, what I tell my patients is do a test. If you have SIBO, we're going to treat it. If you're 80 to 90% better with your symptoms after treatment and remain so uh, during the prevention phase, which is initially three months, you don't need to do another test. I'm not going to change the treatment. If you're, if you're coming in saying, I'm 95% better, I'm, this is terrific. I'm not going to change anything if your test comes back still positive. I'm just going to stay in that prevention mode. That's what it's about is people not having symptoms and feeling good and digesting their food and living their lives. Um, it's not about the test is normal. I do repeat tests, and we have a breath tracker in our office for that purpose. Um, I repeat tests, for instance, if I'm treating somebody for methane SIBO and they have high baseline methane, I'll have them come in, stop in the office, and have a single what we call a spot methane after a month to see, is the herbal treatment working? What is their baseline now? If their baseline was 60 before and now it's 40, I figure, oh, we're on the right track. Let's do another month of this and we'll check it again. If instead it's still 80, then I'm going to change the treatment. So that's very helpful. Uh, it's also, and that's only one kind of SIBO, the high baseline methane, but Again, if someone doesn't feel 80 to 90% better, it's very helpful to do another test so that we can see what happened. Did their methane go down and that released a lot of hydrogen and now we need to focus more on the hydrogen? Did the levels not come down at all? Did they come down dramatically but the person is still not that much better? That tells me to look for another cause. So. A uh, repeat test is very useful, but not when somebody is 80 to 90% better. I have a um, coaching client who sees one of your uh, lovely colleagues, Dr. Jason Wysocki, and uh, her test results really haven't done a lot, but her physical health and her mental health has improved dramatically. And she feels like a brand new woman, even though if all she went off was her SIBO test results. Uh, and she would think, gosh, I'm, I've never improved, but she has improved. And I look at myself and my own health has improved dramatically over the last three years. Yet I have now experienced a relapse with SIBO technically, according to my test results, but I feel so much better than I ever did because of all of the other elements of things that I do around my health, my nutrition, my life, my mindset, uh, my movement than I was doing before. So I use the test result now as an 
interesting indicator, uh, but it's I no longer worry about what the test results are saying because I go off how I feel. And I think an important point um, that we've talked about today is if you're not feeling better, to keep looking. How do people, if people feel their current practitioner is not perhaps equipped or skilled or interested in helping them to continue looking forward, what's your advice on how to, to keep going for a patient that might be feeling a bit overwhelmed with, with that journey of continued exploration? If their doctor doesn't know where to go? Uh, <laughs> Well, you got to find a different doctor or you have to figure it out yourself. And, you know, there's a saying that the doctor that treats themselves has a fool for a patient. So it's kind of tough to treat yourself. I don't envy anybody who is stuck in that, in that situation. But with SIBO, I suppose that can really happen because very few physicians understand it. And I don't think any of us do, even those that know the most. Um, I've only been treating this for, in a major way for the last nine years. Uh, I've been in practice for 40 years. So to me, that's relatively new. I mean, I've been treating, I've been focused on the digestive tract for the last 21 years. Um, but yeah, this is a, this is a field that we're on the leading edge of. Uh, Dr. Seebecker and I and Pimentel and Lenny Weinstock and doctors at Johns Hopkins here in the United States. I mean, this is, we just kind of came up with all this stuff and we're developing as it goes along and, and putting the research together. Um, it's not a static situation. It's not at all. Now, you have a fantastic book, which you've just actually uh, released a, a new edition of. Um, if people would like to read your book or connect with you, how can they uh, How can they find more about everything that you do? I'm always impressed that non-medically trained people read my book because it, it really is a textbook. I don't explain terms. It's, you, you know, you're going to have to Google a lot of terms, but some people just love reading that technical stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I put everything in the book that I wanted to have in a book for my students. Uh, it's called Functional Gastroenterology, and the subtitle is Assessing and Addressing the Underlying Causes of Functional GI Disorders. But Functional Gastroenterology will get you there. Um, Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, and it's on Amazon. Uh, that's the only place it's really sold right now. Um, another place, um, there's podcasts and all these things like that. If you Google my name, you'll find all those things, YouTube videos and things. But um, I'm very proud of my Townsend Letter, um, the, that magazine, the health magazine. I have a monthly column in there now since last summer. And I just you know, write a page or two of musings on some nerdy topic about the digestive tract and and uh, make it nice and bite-sized. So uh, feel free to take a look at those two. It's called Functional Gastroenterology Bolus, B-O-L-U-S. Because bolus means, remember we talked about the shape of the food in your mouth? Bolus is a little ball of food. So this is like a little, a little bit of GI information each month that's very useful and tasty. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Healthy Gut podcast today and sharing uh, your great knowledge on all things functional uh, gastroenterology. And I'm sure that my listeners have uh, had some great insights around some things that they might be able to look into around their condition and uh, and what else may be going going on. I've uh, you know there's so many things that we could have dived into quite deeply, and that could be whole other podcast episodes but thank you so much Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis for coming on the show today You're welcome
That was Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget that you can get the show notes at thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL. And if you would like to get the free transcription from today's show, all you need to do is sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's absolutely free to sign up and you can do it when you head to the show notes page. Absolutely love hearing your feedback, guys. Leave a rating and review on iTunes or the app you use to listen to this episode. And it really does help others know that this is the right podcast for them when it comes to learning more about SIBO. And it makes my day when I see your feedback. So do leave me a message. It just is wonderful to see what you think about this podcast. And come say hi to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. You just need to search for The Healthy Gut and our page will come up. Coming up on next week's show is my nutrition coaching call and this is your opportunity to call in and have your questions featured on the podcast. So head to the show notes page, guys, thehealthygut.co forward slash SSL and you'll see a box there on the page that says leave a voice message for The Healthy Gut and you can record a voice message for me and have a nutrition or food or meal planning or anything like that question that you would like me to then answer for you on next week's show. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, Wisdom from the Top, I talk with CEOs and business leaders about the toughest challenges of their careers. There's lots of ways to measure success. Sometimes a company has to bet against itself. We wanted to set ourselves apart by having a point of view. Businesses really impact people's lives in pretty fundamental ways. On Wisdom from the Top, some of the greatest business leaders of our time share their intimate stories of leadership, innovation, and transformation. Stories you won't hear anywhere else. Check out Wisdom from the Top only on Luminary. Now, back to your show. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.